If you could ask God one question, what would that one question be? If you could ask God one question, and he would actually answer you right now, loud, audibly, and clear, what would your one question be? For those of you who might be new to Christianity, your questions for God might extend to a whole range of topics, such as, am I too bad to be forgiven by you, God? How can I know for sure how to get to heaven, Lord? God, if you are good and sovereign, why is there so much suffering in the world? God, why did you create Satan? God, is is Jesus of Nazareth truly your eternal son? And was he really born of a virgin? Performed miracles, died on a cross, and then rise from the dead? Is Jesus really the only way to be reconciled to God and have eternal life? Now, if you're here today and you consider yourself to be an atheist, you basically dismiss that whole question altogether, mainly because you don't actually believe there is a God you can ask a legitimate question to. Fair enough. If that's you, we're still glad you're here. And we're especially glad you're here because you're sitting in a building this morning full of people who do believe in a real, personal, all-knowing, sovereign God who we can know, who we can trust, and who we can love all of our days. You see, as Christians, we humbly and respectfully but unashamedly send a friendly pushback to you. Because the reality of the matter is this. Atheists and Christians alike, we both have our opinions or beliefs about morality, about objective truth, about the origin of man, about the origin of the universe. As Glenn Scrivener has said, quote, Christians believe in the virgin birth of Jesus. Atheists believe in the virgin birth of the universe. Choose your miracle. My non-Christian friend, regardless of where you're at today and your beliefs towards God, I hope that you would re-examine how you're thinking about life. I would encourage you to listen carefully today about how who Jesus really is, and what what it would mean to actually trust him with your whole life, starting today. And for those of us who profess to be Christians, uh, we're not exempt either. We too have our own sets of questions that we might want to ask God right now. (laughs) Just because we're Christians, it doesn't mean we have all the answers. It doesn't mean we live without any doubts. In fact, every Christian who is honest, and even if you read your Bible carefully, we humbly recognize that our lives, even as Christians, are still full of mystery. It's not absent of perplexity or removed from all paradox. Now, as believers, some of us might be thinking, you know, if I had one question for God, I've got a humdinger for him. I've got some theological questions that I just cannot work out in my mind. I've been reading my Bible for years now, and Christians are so sharply divided over a few of these things. I'm going to ask God himself so I can tell everybody on earth what God told me. But chances are, if you're like most believers I know, your questions will be less about Bible knowledge and Bible trivia facts And instead, your questions and my questions probably come from life's more perplexing situations, disorienting and disappointing experiences. Questions like, will you ever save my kids, my spouse, my siblings, 
my parents? Why did my dad walk out on our family and leave my mom? Why did my sister have to die so young? Why did you create my child with a learning disability? What good purpose do you have for allowing me to have this incurable health condition? Why did my business fail? Why did my last job that I really enjoy get taken from me? Why won't you expose those religious hypocrites who have dishonored your name and stop them from wreaking further havoc in your church? Will these doubts of mine about the Bible, about the Christian faith, about my own salvation ever go away? Lord, are you pleased with how I'm living my life right now? You see, when you become a Christian, some of life's questions get answered. You begin reading the Bible for yourself, and you join a church and sit under the teaching of God's Word from those who know the Bible better than you, and you begin to see the world through a different lens. Now, all our questions don't get answered, but we do begin seeing life in a much different light. Many things begin to start to fall in place. As C.S. Lewis once said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. So instead of living a hyper-subjective, naturalistic, man-centered, human, philosophical way of approaching life, the God-breathed scriptures actually give us real help and lasting hope. It's because the Spirit of the living God directs our focus to our unchanging and always faithful God. In other words, when we get in God's word, it takes the focus off ourself. You see, that's when we get in trouble. When we're too navel-gazing and inwardly focused, we begin to see that we change all the time. Our feelings change, our beliefs change, our desires change. Friends, none of us are ultimately reliable. Not your spouse, not your pastor, not your president. No man, no woman is ultimately as reliable as God. You see, by God's amazing grace through Jesus Christ, we begin to see life as God sees life. His truth then sanctifies us and sets us free. We put our faith in Jesus and we become a son or daughter of God we actually are given the ability by God to discern what pleases him and what doesn't please him. You know, the scriptures, maybe you're a little skeptical about the Bible. You've read some Bart Ehrman and some, you know, religious studies at a secular university, and you're like, oh, I've got five arguments against the Bible. Fair enough. Just to remind you that the scriptures were written to an original audience at a particular point in time, at a particular point in history. But the scriptures have been preserved throughout history for the benefit of God's people throughout all of salvation history. And you see, the longer we look away from ourselves and the longer we look away from thinking that we know all the answers, we begin to see that God is, God is all we have. He's unchanging. He's trustworthy. He's all-powerful. He's eternal. And, and friends, when we look not to ourselves but to him, that's when our faith grows. See, when we look to ourselves, our faith shrivels. We live by statistics. We live by chances. We live by predictions. Our faith won't grow. But when our faith is anchored in the truth, the truth about God, the truth about his son, Jesus Christ, our faith actually prospers. You see, the God of Holy Scripture is the God for whom nothing is impossible. And yet, with all that being true, Christians still humbly recognize that we all come across various seasons 
various moments in our lives where we face a crossroads. A crossroads of faith and unbelief. Will I trust God and what he has revealed about himself or will I distrust him? Will my pain and my problems drive me closer to the throne of grace? Or will my pain and problems drive me deeper into self-destruction and despair? Dwight L. Moody once said, there are three kinds of faith. There is struggling faith, like a man in deep water desperately swimming. There is clinging faith, like a man hanging to the side of a boat. And then there is resting faith, like a man safely within the boat, able to reach out and help others get in. Friends, if you were to be totally honest with yourself today, what is your faith looking like? How would you describe your faith in God today? A struggling faith, a clinging faith, or a resting faith? If you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. In our time this morning, we'll be studying Mark 9, verses 14 to 29. If you're using one of the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 493. And if you don't have a Bible, you can read at home. You can take that Bible sitting right there in the chairs as a gift from our church to you. Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 14. Mark 9, starting in verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the Spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. It has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, he came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we 
not cast it out. And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is God's word. Last week we left off in Mark 9 verses 2 to 13 uh, with the scene of Jesus on top of a mountain. Most likely this was Mount Hermon, a mountain where Jesus had led three of his 12 disciples, Peter, James, and John, uh, to join him. And Luke's gospel tells us exactly what Jesus had intended, at least what he told them. He led them up the mountain to pray with him. But in the course of time, the prayer meeting took a change of events, took a turn into a powerful, unforgettable display of the revealing of the glory of Jesus Christ. Or at least it was a brief glimpse, anyways, of his divine glory. On that mountain, those three disciples uh, saw an appearance of Jesus they had never seen before in that way. And it left them stunned and afraid. Uh, To some degree, even speechless. But old Peter, you know, the disciple with the foot-shaped mouth, he had a few things to say. But even Peter was scrambling in response, and he just uttered some incoherent words that the Scriptures tell us he didn't even know what he was asking. However, this glory that Jesus possessed was not always obvious to them. Not in least until Jesus would die on the cross, rise from the dead, and the day of Pentecost would arrive in Acts chapter 2. Just like many of us, we can be slow to believe. Our hearts and our eyes can be slow to understand, slow to trust who Jesus is. These disciples, they experienced that same reality, even as they walked with him in flesh and body. You might say they often listened to their doubts and their preconceived ideas about Jesus rather than listening carefully to what Jesus was revealing about himself. When the disciples found themselves at this crossroads of faith and unbelief, it didn't appear that they always chose faith. It didn't seem that the road of faith was the road they always took. Nonetheless, when Jesus called them to deny themselves, take up their cross and follow him, they did believe that he had the words of eternal life. Jesus, who was truly man, has always been and always will be the eternal Son of God. And friends, this reality was becoming clearer to them, little bit by little bit. And on that mountain, amidst all the colorful and vivid imageries, of a bright light shining as bright as the sun, a cloud hovering over the mountain, much like a cloud did at Mount Sinai with Moses in the Old Testament. A voice came thundering through the heavens. A voice piercing through the sky into their human ears that emphatically declared that the final prophet God would raise up was before them. A voice with the adoring adoration that this was God's beloved son. We read in Mark 9 verses 7 to 8, and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And Suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. You see, on that Mount of Transfiguration, they were privileged to see a brief glimpse of their Messiah's glory. A mountaintop experience, better than any youth camp in the summer for any young child or any adult. I go off to T4G this week and I get pumped up, even if it's great. Even if it's great for Jansen and Casey and Julie, that mountaintop experience is, well, it's going to end eventually, as all good things do. You see, this morning we find ourselves not on the top of the mountain anymore, but we're back on level ground. Back in the hustle and bustle of Monday to Friday, the nine to five grind, we might say. We find ourselves looking in the Gospel of Mark at something that we've looked at time and time again. 
the picture of multitudes of needy and troubled people looking for help to life's biggest problems. Looking for hope in the midst of life's most disorienting and disappointing circumstances. In our passage this morning, we're going to read about people who are quarrelsome and not worth our time talking to. We're going to read about people who have experienced grave disappointments in life, people who have experienced humiliating failures, and people who are looking for answers to life's most perplexing questions. People just like you and me. People that Jesus came for. People that he came to teach. People he came to heal. People he came to love. People he came to help. People he came to save. If you're taking notes, I have two main points that will serve as an outline for us this morning. Point number one, Jesus will help those who come humbly to him with their faith crisis. Jesus will help those who come humbly to him with their faith crisis. Point number two, Jesus will use failure in our lives to teach us greater dependence on God. Jesus will use failure in our lives to teach us greater dependence on God. Let's look at number one together. Jesus will help us or help those who come humbly to him with their faith crisis. Look with me again at Mark 9, starting in verse 14. Mark 9, 14 to 16. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? In Mark's gospel, we're not told explicitly how long since Jesus, with Peter, James, and John, had been separated from the other disciples. Uh, keep in mind, they have been on a mountain for some time. Luke's gospel says in Luke 9.37, on the next day when they came down from the mountain. So were they gone just for 24 hours? I mean, did they sprint up the mountain, see a glimpse of his glory, and sprint down the mountain all in 24 hours? I don't know, maybe. But I tend to think it was a little longer than that. Probably not months, probably not like a six-month sabbatical, but probably a few days. Either way, though, it doesn't appear that they were gone so long that they'd forgotten each other. After this mountaintop experience, Jesus and the other three they quickly get down the mountain, and they quickly find out where the disciples are. And what do they find the other nine disciples doing? They're in a dispute. They're in an argument. They're in a heated debate. Uh, we can safely say they're not exactly having a nice family Easter picnic on a Sunday afternoon. No, Mark tells us they encounter a great crowd, which really just means a lot of people uh, surrounding them like a massive schoolyard scuffle on the playground. But this time it's not between the fourth graders and the fifth graders. It's not a scuffle over playing kickball or soccer, but it does appear that the skirmish is somewhat childish and foolish in nature. That's why Jesus shows a grave concern and really just a general disagreement in his spirit when he approaches the situation. Notice what he asks in verse 16. What are you arguing about with them? You see, this unfriendly dispute that Jesus observes that his disciples were engaged in apparently was a fruitless argument. It was a waste of time. It was debating about things that were really going nowhere. And Mark tells us exactly who the disciples were arguing with. Did you notice there in verse 14? He said it was the scribes. Now you may recall, if you've been here for the last year, we've been studying through the Gospel of Mark. The scribes were the religious experts of the Mosaic Law. At least that's how they were esteemed in their day. The Pharisees were often lumped up with them. 
The scribes were pretty much among them and kind of ministered and ran alongside them. Uh, These, as a total package, were the Jewish elites and the religious authorities of the day. Uh, Remember the Pharisees and the scribes? Pretty much every time they're mentioned together in the Gospel of Mark, they are maliciously opposing Jesus and instigating problems to get people to doubt Jesus. Uh, If you want to do some more studies in that, you can read Mark 2, Mark 3, Mark 7, and Mark 8 to be freshly reminded again. But this time the scribes know that Jesus, he's not around. Jesus isn't around, at least not for a little while. And it leaves the nine disciples without Jesus around to protect them and to defend them. These nine disciples are left somewhat vulnerable. Vulnerable like weak, powerless, and scared sheep who are an easy and open target for spiritual attack. When the cat is away, the mice will play. But sometimes snake and wolves show up in the cat's absence. Friends, if you're a Christian, that's why it's very important that you join a biblically sound, gospel-preaching local church. You should commit your life with other like-minded believers who want to disciple you and minister to you and a local church who has elders, biblically qualified men, according to Scripture, as pastors to shepherd you, to shepherd the flock and to protect the flock from wolves. Friends, we can all become vulnerable to spiritual attacks. Not one Christian is exempt. Satan desires to sift believers like wheat. Those who are generally less discerning in the faith, maybe younger in the faith, more gullible to believe everything they're told by others, uh, they are typically the ones the enemy goes after. They're the sheep that are kind of wandering on the fringe. They're stuck in a vine. They can't get out of the ditch. They're eating slop, and they need to be helped and protected. Uh, Members of CCBC, pray for your elders. Pray for your elders. Pray that we faithfully and courageously fulfill the noble charge of caring and protecting Christ's sheep. Remember Paul's words in Acts 20 as he exhorted the Ephesian elders? He said in Acts 20, starting in verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after him. And friends, that's where we're at in Mark 9. Jesus comes down the mountain with his three, and he finds his nine disciples getting attacked. They're getting debated with. They are getting cross-examined, we might even say. But what exactly are the scribes cross-examining these disciples about? Well, remember, with Rabbi Jesus no longer around to defend them, no longer around to spout off the scriptures exactly the way God intended, these scribes know that they can outsmart the disciples. They can run circles around these disciples. Remember, they're the scribes. They've got more than an MDiv and a PhD. They know their Old Testaments, or at least they thought they did. They know that in front of the crowds who are watching, they can make Jesus' disciples look foolish, look incompetent, maybe even make Jesus look bad. Most likely, though, the argument had to do with a ministry quandary that the disciples were left open to public criticism for, public shame, a failure we're going to look at more closely in the verses coming up. 
Nonetheless, we're told that when Jesus shows up, the crowds become less interested in the playground scuffle. They're not really all that excited or rambunctious about what's going on between the disciples and the scribes. They are now much more interested in flocking to Jesus. Look there in verse 15, Mark tells us, and immediately, in other words, quick, fast, in a hurry, better than a clearance at Walmart or Target, they are running to Jesus. Friends, this is exactly what happens when Jesus shows up and begins working in someone's life. This is exactly what happens when Jesus begins to be elevated high and lifted up in the ministry of a church. Heads start looking upward. Hearts start crying out for someone more powerful, someone more trustworthy, someone more compassionate than any other human we can meet. The more powerful one, the always compassionate one, to the weak and weary sheep is it's none other than Jesus, the good shepherd who came down that mountain to graze again amongst his sheep. You see, when Jesus enters into people's lives, he doesn't leave you the same. Friends, you might have been to like 45 Easter services in the last 45 years, and you might be asking yourself, how does a historical event or a so-called event from 2,000 plus years ago, have anything to do with my life? It's a great question. It's a question that many of us have, don't we? Friends, I just want to challenge you. The entire message of Christianity hinges on the resurrection. The entire message is down to this one question. Did Jesus get up from the dead or did he just die a natural death? Friends, when Jesus shows up, he's about to do things that only one who is the life and the resurrection could do. So pay careful attention when Jesus shows up in your life. He will begin raising dead things that you didn't even know were dead. But among this crowd, the hustling and bustling crowd, one man who's courageous enough and desperate enough, and we're actually told he has no name here. The gospel writers don't even mention his name. He raises his voice. No microphone, no podcast, no platform. He's yelling. He's raising his voice. Jesus, look at me. He wants Jesus' undivided attention. What does this man raise his voice to Jesus say? Look at verse 17 and 18. And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out. And they were not able. If you are a nurse or a doctor, or you have paid careful attention to the description of this boy, uh, the medical diagnosis that we might give this today would be the closest to epilepsy. The synoptic gospel writers all mention that he suffered from seizures. From the description in the story, it was grand mal seizures. His suffering consisted of convulsions, foaming at the mouth, outcries, locked jaw, bodily rigidity, and a loss of consciousness. And to understand the severity and the sensitivity of the issue at hand, this man wasn't just some crazy man, just wanting to distract Jesus for a little bit. No, Luke's gospel says this father said that this was his only child. Not just any child, his only child, Luke 9, 38. In fact, you'll also notice that the father had to speak up for his son. That's because the son couldn't speak for himself. That's because Mark reveals to us that his physical suffering also included the inability 
speak. He was mute, verse 17 says. But friends, the depth of this boy's suffering was deeper than epilepsy. It also included the reality of intense spiritual torment. The boy was a prisoner in his own body, a prisoner in his own mind. We're told in this passage that the boy was also demonized, and the father knows it. The father knows that it's both physical suffering and spiritual torment that's been going on in his boy's life, his only child's life. You see, that father knows what we too need to figure out really quick if we don't yet. Friends, we live in a physical world with physical needs and physical problems. But as Christians, we also believe we live in a spiritual world with spiritual needs and major spiritual problems. Friends, as Christians, we wake up every day, our nine-to-five grind that might feel monotonous, nothing exciting, except some crazy storms on Monday, hashtag Arkansas. Every day until that day, the day we are with our king, our good shepherd, face-to-face, we are in a daily battle. Friends, do you understand how much warfare this week has been attacked towards you to get you not to come to church? To get you out of this book? To get you to distrust your elders, distrust the members, distrust your husband, distrust your wife, distrust your friends? Friends, that's not from God. That's war. When we pray on Sunday morning, when we preach on Sunday morning, when we raise our voices on Sunday morning, it's a declaration of war. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth in boiling as it is in heaven. This is war. And this daddy didn't have much theology He had never been to CCBC, never got his MDiv, never spent time in an internship or an apprenticeship. He was a desperate daddy that knew, my boy is in trouble. He's physically suffering and he's spiritually tormented. And I need help. This daddy, he knew what Ephesians 6 would say for us. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Friends, that's why Mark gives us in this story the supernatural, spiritual depth of darkness going on behind the scenes. In verse 17, you can look there, you'll notice the father says he has a spirit that makes him mute. In verse 25, we're told explicitly it's a demonic spirit, or Mark describes it as an unclean spirit. That's just another word that means ungodly, unholy, a spirit that does not come from the Holy One. A spirit that lies to you, a spirit that deceives you, a spirit that torments you, a spirit that wants to take you out and destroy you, a spirit that wants to keep you in bondage to unbelief, bondage to fear, bondage to pride. Mark tells us there in verse 25, that this unclean spirit has even contributed to making the boy mute and deaf. He can't speak, and he can't even hear what his daddy's telling him. But what's even more disheartening about this situation, the physical suffering, the spiritual suffering, is how long it's been going on. This wasn't just a bad weekend. Or a six-month detour on the things I wanted to do in life. Three months in rehab. 
few weeks of surgery recovery. No, 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 no. Mark is very clear. The gospel writers are very clear. Look at verse 21 and 22. We're told that this spirit has been a thorn in this boy's life from his childhood. It has been wreaking havoc since the day he was just out of diapers. It's been leading this boy to a self-destructive life of being cast into fire and in water. Friends, this father is in a very desperate and difficult situation. A very perplexing and disorienting life circumstance. But much like Jairus was with his little girl back in Mark 5. Much like the Syrophoenician woman with her little girl in Mark 7. Here we see once again the earnest cry of a needy parent pleading for Jesus to help them with their child's debilitating condition. And to add to the dogpile of pain and hurt, this daddy tried to get help, but the help he sought out sorely disappointed him. You see, this father had went up to Jesus' nine disciples. Nine of them were available. Nine of them offered to help. Nine of them confidently told him, we could heal him. You seen our resume? We've done it before. In case you didn't know, Jesus is our pastor. We're kind of a big deal. Apparently, this father had heard testimonies. We might say he got recommendations from others about how good these guys were to heal other people. They had heard that these 12 disciples had been authorized by Jesus, had been empowered by Jesus to deliver people from sicknesses and demons, just like his little boy. And they could not help him. The daddy ran to those men, and they could not deliver what they promised. We read at the end of verse 18, So I asked your disciples, Jesus. In other words, the men you've been training, you've been teaching, to cast it out, and they were not able. The father's hopes were dashed. Their expectations have been failed. Parents, can you identify with this father in any way this morning? Do you feel like you've reached the end of your rope in parenting? Have you sought out help from others? Doctors, family members, friends, pastors, counselors, but your hopes were dashed? Your expectations of what they promised didn't measure up. Parents, does your child have some form of physical or mental handicap? or Maybe even abnormalities and social skills that make life hard for you? It makes life hard for your kid? For all the parents in the room, whether you have young kids or adult children, have you ever had to see your child suffer from cancer, seizures, a brain injury? Have you ever had to watch others make fun of your children because they were different? I just want to encourage you. Jesus knows and Jesus cares. Jesus is compassionate. And unlike every other human on the planet, Jesus understands. You see, in Mark 9, we do read on this particular occasion that the son had suffered both physically and spiritually. But friends, I don't want you to read Mark 9 with a wrong angle. We do live in a physical and spiritual world, but not all handicaps, not all seizures, not all abnormalities, not all social skill issues are a result of the devil. Friends, we live in a fallen world that is cursed by the bondage of corruption. Genesis 3, Romans 8, 2 Corinthians 4 and 5. 
in this body, our kids and to our adult years, will groan. Our bodies are not what they should be, but one day in Christ, they will be glorified. So if you have a child that you are raising up and you're caring for, and life is hard because of whatever handicap or suffering they're facing, friends, I want to encourage each one of you of David's words, of how no matter how God has made your children or how God has made even the person you're living with, they are still made by a good and sovereign God. Psalm 139, starting in verse 13, David said, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Friends, there are no accidents in God's birthing room. Every child is made on purpose and for a purpose, and regardless of what society Regardless of what schoolyard kids say, they are fearfully and wonderfully made. Praise be to God. So what does Jesus say next? What does Jesus do next? Well, in verse 19, Jesus is not indifferent to this. He expresses grief over the unbelief that occurred around him on that day. He comes down that mountain. He sees a playground scuffle. He sees a desperate father. He sees sheepish, shameful disciples. And Jesus says, enough. The fair-weather fans among the crowds, the evil-hearted scribes who argue with his disciples, and the sheepish disciples who fail to care for the father. Jesus says, how long? How long am I to bear and endure such unbelief around me? But then in a matter of probably minutes, Jesus takes control. Jesus commands that the boy be brought directly to him. The boy is then brought to Jesus, and the boy is struggling. The boy is suffering. In fact, the closer the boy gets to Jesus, it seems like the worse he gets. Friends, just as a sidebar application, when God begins to work in anyone's life, there is usually a season of time where there's panic and stress and chaos because death has to happen first before resurrection can happen second. Do not get nervous. Things didn't work out like I thought. God, when he works, he's breaking down strongholds. He's revealing demons, and he's bringing people from death to life. It may get really ugly before it gets really beautiful. And that's what we see here with this boy. He's coming through the crowd. I could just imagine him holding his son, his only child, looking at Jesus. Your disciples failed me. The scribes are no good. The crowd's in the way. Jesus, can you do something? And all of a sudden, when that boy gets closer to Jesus, something else saw Jesus. The scriptures tell us it was a spirit, a demon. He knew exactly who he was getting close to. The same thing we've seen throughout Mark's gospel. Jesus ain't scared of nobody. He wasn't scared going to a Roman cross, and he's not scared of all of hell's demons. They tremble at him. Please follow with me. Starting in Mark 9, second half of verse 22 where we see the father stand at a crossroads, a crossroads of faith and unbelief. He says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, 
help my unbelief. Have you ever been there? Come on, this is that time. Raise your hand if you've been there. All right? You believe in God. And yet at the same time, you say, unbelief is creeping at the door of my heart. I know I have. This past week, April 15th to be exact, I reflected back on my 23rd Christian birthday. I'm not 23 years old, thank you for the compliment, but 23 years ago, on April 15th, 1999, the Lord drew me to himself and made me one of his sons. He made me a Christian. And as I've reflected over the last 23 years since that day, my Christian walk, I can tell you, friends, has been filled with many different crossroads of faith and unbelief. We're going to persevere through the rain. Through my Christian pilgrimage, I have found myself with that inward torment of a paradox of emotions. I believe, help my unbelief. Friends, Mark 9.24 isn't a stale Bible verse for me. It is a real part of my Christian story. Through my own personal sin and discipleship, I've lacked assurance of my salvation many times in my Christian walk. Through my family having strife and watching marriages ripped apart, I've had my faith tested immensely. Through bouts with depression, paralyzing social anxiety, a crippling fear of man, phobias of public speaking, feeling incompetent in the Bible, allergic to long-term commitments, the draining of personal finances, the discouragement of seeing prayers not answered the way I wanted, ministry endeavors hitting me in the face and knocking me on the back. Friends, that's just an appetizer of the last 23 years of following Jesus. Friends, I'm sure you have your own story as well. You know, sometimes people will say, Brother Blake, God will open doors. Yes, he does. And sometimes he lets you walk right through them and lets the roof fall down on you. Sometimes he shuts the door right in your face right when you're about to get to the entrance and smashes your fingers right as you open the door. Friends, it's in these moments when the roof falls in, when the door slams shuts on your hand, this was always plan A in God's book. Never to support evil, never to take pleasure in sin. God will always vindicate his name. He will be just and every man will be a liar. But every suffering, every disappointment, every disorienting experience is still under the sovereign hand of God. Friends, our faith rarely grows when everything is going hunky-dory. Our faith always grows when you realize God is all you got. I believe. Help my unbelief. What crossroads of a faith crisis have you experienced in your life? When doubts come knocking at the door of your heart, what is your battle plan for fighting for faith? Have you just tried to manage life all on your own? Have you just tried to white-knuckle your way through life? Grit your teeth, beat yourself up, concentrate really hard as if squinting is more spiritual than keeping your eyes open. I've never understood that, by the way. It just looks painful when I give someone an ibuprofen. I'm like, stop it. Friends, where do you go for truth? Where do you go for wisdom? Where do you go for guidance in life? Do you just speak positive thoughts over your life? Positive vibes? as if you can speak words and things into existence. Friends, that's baloney. You can't speak anything to existence. That's something only God can do. He creates by his word something out of nothing. Friends, all of us have different things in our lives that when unbelief starts raising its ugly head, we run to, but it's not helpful. It actually can make matters worse. Friends, I don't know where you're at today. I don't know what crossroads of faith and unbelief you're facing, but Jesus does. I don't know where you'll be a year from now, 
but Jesus does. Why should we bring our unbelief to Jesus? Because the compassion of Jesus is greater than the burden of unbelief. The compassion of Jesus, it outweighs the heaviest burden of unbelief. Friends, Jesus shows compassion to the weak and weary. Friends, Jesus shows up in the dark night of the soul. It's when you least expect him. It's when his most present to work in our life. Friends, we should trust God as Jesus called this man to trust him. We should trust God even if he doesn't answer exactly the way we want him to because he'll do whatever is best for us. Friends, we need to have not just a struggling faith, not merely a clinging faith, but a resting faith, a faith that rests in the finished work of Jesus Christ, a faith that is resting in the empty tomb, a faith that is resting, that says, I believe, Lord, and I know you are able to help me overcome my unbelief. Friends, don't get comfortable in your unbelief. That's a dangerous place to be. Call upon the Lord. Ask him to help you overcome your unbelief. Friends, if Jesus can overcome the grave, and he did, can he not also overcome your unbelief? Listen to my non-Christian friend. If you're doubting that God exists, you're doubting Jesus is the Son of God, ask yourself this question. How did these disciples who were doubtful faithless, forgetful, not reliable. How did those young men just a few years later turn the world upside down for Jesus? How do you go from men that would betray him in his most needy hour to being bold evangelists who will eventually die for him? How do you explain that? When you read the book of Acts, it's the resurrection. If you think your unbelief is too big for Jesus, go back to the empty tomb. He made doubtful, fickle, unreliable disciples bold lions for him because of the resurrection. And friends, you might be sitting here today and you might be thinking, Blake, I'm fine living with unbelief. It's my own little pet sin. I'm not killing anybody. I'm not stealing money from my grandma, but I'm just going to kind of keep it here. It's going to be just fine for me to have these doubts and not even do anything with them. Mark Vergop challenges us to believe differently. He says this in his book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. To pray in pain, even with its messy struggle and tough questions, is an act of faith where we open up our hearts to God. Prayerful lament is better than silence. However, I found that many people are afraid of lament. They find it too honest, too open, too risky. But there's something far worse. Silent despair. Giving God the silent treatment is the ultimate manifestation of unbelief. Despair lives under the hopeless resignation that God doesn't care, he doesn't hear, and nothing is ever going to change. People who believe this stop praying. They give up. Friends, don't give up. He's faithful, and he's proven himself faithful by raising Jesus from the dead. Friends, Jesus will help those who come humbly to him with their faith crisis. But Jesus also teaches us a valuable and priceless gift through an uncommon way, which leads to our final point, point number two, Jesus will use failure in our lives to teach us greater dependence on God. Look at me at verses 25 to 29. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. 
After crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. You see, Jesus was perfectly able to heal. Jesus was powerful enough to deliver. Jesus was successful to resurrect even this little boy back to life. And yet the story now begins to fade. The scribes, they're not even in the picture anymore. They had shown themselves up to try to prove that Jesus isn't who he was. We're not even told if they're even a part of this equation anymore. The crowds were running together to see what would happen. And the disciples, they're left quiet. That is, until they could slip away with Jesus. As they're standing probably in the back of the crowd, trying to kind of do one of these numbers, they wait till the crowd leaves, they follow Jesus, and then they ask Jesus why they couldn't answer that man's request. Friends, why couldn't the disciples cast the demon out? Why couldn't he heal them? Friends, if you go back to Mark 3, Mark 6, Jesus gave them the authority to do this. He gave them the power to do this. It wasn't that they lacked the available power. They had just stopped trusting in that power. Friends, the disciples had everything they needed to do God's will. But when you try to do God's will in man's strength, you will fail. Friends, demonic activity can vary from lesser to greater degrees. These disciples thought, you know, we're about 11 and 0 on casting out demons recently. You know, we're kind of like conference champions. We got this. And they met their match. That's why Jesus says in Mark 9, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Friends, the Lord may put you in challenges in the days ahead that are three times harder than what you faced in the past. That's on purpose. We need God yesterday, today, and tomorrow. But Jesus tells us here in verse 29, or Mark quoting Jesus, that they lacked faith, which showed through their lack of prayer. One theologian has said, prayer is faith turned to God. Prayer is faith turned to God. Friends, ask yourself the question, why weren't the disciples praying? Why weren't, why weren't they depending on God in prayer? Evidently, they were becoming self-sufficient. Self-reliant. Friends, churches can do this all the time. We can begin to serve Jesus in autopilot. Friends, that's a dangerous place to be. You and I should never be serving Jesus in autopilot. We're in a battle, and we need fresh grace and fresh strength for fresh battles. Friends, these disciples failed because they were prideful. They weren't relying on God anymore. They were relying on themselves. And friends, failure should teach us to do the same thing. Failure should teach us humility. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. A few years ago, Tim Keller, a well-known Christian author and former pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, was diagnosed with stage 4 pancreatic cancer. Since then, he's been interviewed by several others to hear how he's doing. In a recent article that was published, he was asked the following question about his faith. I've included his response below. The interviewer asked, Tim, as a pastor, professor, and author, when it comes to faith, you've used your head a lot. And now you're talking about growing in an experience of faith. How have you gone about doing that? 
Tim Keller responded, every Christian knows what the means are. It's just a question of actually using them. The means are the Bible, prayer, meditation, corporate worship, and the ordinances. Meditation is not the same as either reading the Bible or prayer. If you want an example of meditation, read Psalm 103, and you'll see the psalmist is not addressing God. He's addressing his soul. He's addressing himself. And that's not prayer, but that's also not just reading the Bible. That is learning how to take what he's read in the Bible and screw it down into his heart till it catches fire. I pray more often, but I also do it more longingly. And what's really amazing is that when you know you've got to have more of God, because there's really no alternative, to our surprise, there is more of God to be gotten. And you say, why didn't I find this before? And the answer is, you didn't feel the same sense of need. What is the point of Mark 9, 14 to 29? We need Jesus more than we think we do. We need Jesus more than we think we do. Friends, Christians around the world have recognized he is risen. He is risen indeed. My question to us is, what is he doing now? Romans 8, 34 says this, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. You see, in this life, we walk by faith and not by sight. But in the life to come, we will walk by sight because God kept our faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would use the preaching of your word to fall upon the good soil of our hearts and bear fruit that brings you glory. We praise you that in the resurrection we have hope beyond this life. We praise you that you care for parents and children who have suffering and handicaps. Lord, we pray, we praise you that even right now when we are acknowledging our faith and our unbelief, you are praying for us. Lord, receive the praise and glory we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.